Section 13 of Wellington by George Hooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9. Waterloo, Part 1. Weary of war, yet proud of her own unyielding obstinacy in the prolonged contest, England heartily welcomed back a general who, like John Churchill a hundred years before, brought home her colors, rent indeed in the tempest of battle, yet untarnished by defeat. If his strong character was not spoiled by popular applause, it was not the fault of his admirers. When he reached Westminster Bridge on June 23, 1814, the multitude dragged his carriage to the house of the Duchess in Hamilton Place. The next day Lord Bathurst hurried him to Portsmouth, where the regent and his guests, the emperors and kings, were to witness a naval review. Returning, he took his seat as a peer, all his titles having been conferred since he sailed for Lisbon in 1809. He was thanked and congratulated on the part of the House of Commons by a committee of fifteen, as was the Duke of Marlborough, and on July 1st, clad in field marshal's uniform and wearing the garter and the golden fleece, he thanked the House in person from a place within the bar on the left of the entrance, expressing his gratitude for the noblest gift that any subject had ever received, the grant of £400,000 voted on May 12th. A week later he carried the sword of state when the solemn thanksgiving for peace was rendered in St. Paul's, and in July the city gave him a banquet in the Guildhall. It was the high, yet not the highest, tide of his popularity. That was to come, and we may infer from his letters that without being unduly elated, he received plaudits and honors alike as marks of the confidence felt in him by the princes and the people. But his judgment was not misled, nor was his manly simplicity of character impaired by this outburst of enthusiasm in all ranks. The Duke did not long enjoy a well-won period of rest at home. Always ready, as he told the House of Commons, to serve His Majesty in any capacity, the ministers speedily sent him as ambassador to the capital of France, precisely where his presence, one might have imagined, would be unwelcome to so many. On the road he took a military survey of Belgium, when his eye was attracted by the position at Waterloo in relation to the great lines of operation from the side of France, and he reported on the fortresses, which were the wrecks of the old barrier. The embassy to Paris was not productive of much advantage. Before the winter came, hostility was shown by the courtiers in the palace, as well as the Bonapartists in the streets, and the ministers, fearing that some mischance might occur, were anxious to bring him home. They invented the pretext of sending him to command in America, but he steadfastly refused to be frightened away, and so far prevailed that Lord Liverpool at length gave him permission to select his own time of departure from a post he should not have been selected to fill. He said that as matters stood the ministers could not allow him to quit Europe, for should anything occur, and he repeatedly pointed to its probability, there is nobody but myself, he wrote, in whom either yourselves or the country or your allies would feel any confidence. So he stayed on until the spring was near, and then quitted Paris to replace Lord Castlereagh at the Congress of Quarrelsome Sovereigns held in Vienna. Peace had come, but it rested on no solid basis, hardly on any basis at all. The conquerors all the winter were on the point of fighting for the spoil, 
and it was evident at an early hour that a new war could only be avoided by a series of compromises in the redistribution of territory the measure of the peril is the secret treaty of alliance between austria france and england to resist the northern powers who had extensive views on saxony and poland when the treaty of vienna is criticised it should never be forgotten that it was the price of peace in europe and that the end sought by those who most fiercely denounced it could only have been attained if at all which is doubtful by another twenty or thirty years of internecine war the english government consented to rather than concurred in the arrangements they were obliged to take part because without them there could have been no general settlement and the penalty of refusal would have been battle and confusion the issue out of the chaos was one not foreseen napoleon in elba affecting to be in amor absorbed in the management of his household his cows and his poultry closely watched the course of events and gradually prepared to make his spring he was in communication direct or indirect with the discontented fragments of his old armies the temper of which wellington detected soon after he set foot in paris dumouriez as early as december saw clearly into the facts when he said that napoleon was not the namor that he had been imprudently placed too near france and italy and that his spirit reigning through and through the french army still fed him with hope murat in naples was also and always a more or less faithful ally of the deposed emperor sure to stir if the latter showed signs of vitality the movements of murat indeed correspond with the ceaseless but careful preparations of his brother-in-law and the king of naples would not have been condemned for selfish haste had the emperor napoleon finally been victorious the peace with the united states terminating a war mainly begun and waged to serve napoleon and the slave power though based on a good pretext was an event adverse to the plans meditated in the island of elba but it may have helped to precipitate their execution before the flower of the british army could be brought over the atlantic in other respects the emperor who had good grounds to work on judged that the conditions were favourable and early in march the startled congress learned first that he was in france striding triumphantly toward the capital and next that he was once more master of the resources of france it was the military spirit detected by dumouriez and noticed by wellington which enabled napoleon to march unopposed from the gulf of juan to the tuileries the miracle was wrought in his name but it was the work of the army the marshals have recalled bonaparte said ney to the prefect of saint-in because they were insulted by the men about the king i know all that we have to fear he added but i would rather be brayed in a mortar by bonaparte than humiliated by fellows who never fought les émigrés ont encore perdu le roi the statement was not true of all the marshals but the words of ney fairly paint the time the bonapartists may have conspired sur la place publique but napoleon knew well what armed support he could get when he embarked at porto ferraio whence three thousand years ago etruscan populonia drew its stores of iron the sovereigns and plenipotentiaries at vienna acted with promptitude and unanimity 
on march seventh when the courier brought wellington the news from florence that napoleon had quitted elba they set their armies in motion toward france and metternich records that at pressburg a few days later a regiment of cuirassiers defiled before wellington on its way to the rhine which a short time before he had seen in vienna on its road to quarters in hungary wellington himself as usual looked to business and was at ease you will have seen what a breeze bonaparte has stirred up in france he wrote to his brother henry on march twenty fourth we are all unanimous here and in the course of about six weeks rather a sanguine estimate there will not be fewer than seven hundred thousand men on the french frontier i am going to take the command of the army in the netherlands where we may note the prince of orange if not general kleist was in great alarm hurry out everything no time must be lost the prince wrote to lord bathurst on the same day when napoleon reported to be at lille was actually in the tuileries where he had been installed three days in paris shrewd observers at that moment looking realities in the face saw in the return from elba war implacable immediate universal not only because napoleon was a menace to the kings but still more a menace to liberty napoleon said monsieur de fontaine de villemain napoleon cannot endure this time because he no longer enjoys the natural conditions of life his quarrel is now said another more with the peoples than their rulers he might conquer at first but he must fall in the end one pulse throbbed through europe and in france there was neither hope nor enthusiasm outside the pale of the army napoleon who had renounced his solemn renunciation of the french throne was placed by the congress hors la roi in the declaration adopted on march thirteenth and the treaty of the twenty fifth provided the means of enforcing the judgment of the public tribunal it was after this instrument had been signed that napoleon started for brussels where he arrived on april fourth there he began the hard task of forming an army managing the king of the netherlands the most difficult person to get on with i ever met and knitting closely his relations with that portion of the prussian army which had been brought on the ground the english ministry found it impossible to furnish the promised quota of troops from any source nor could they supply wellington with the forty thousand british infantry and fifteen thousand british cavalry with which he would have been satisfied yet by degrees the trusty little host grew stronger as the transports poured into ostend and the continental troops assigned to him reached belgium but at the end of may he could only muster one hundred and five thousand men of varied nationalities for all purposes while the british and germans upon whom he could thoroughly rely formed little more than a third of the force available for service in the field at the same period the prussians had become a considerable mass and both armies were in close communication napoleon on regaining power at once set about organizing an army on the basis of the troops he found afoot but a large nominal force of all kinds only gave him some hundred and thirty thousand men for the invasion of belgium he tried hard but failed to gain time and then instead of waiting until the allies were ready to attack he quitted paris on june twelfth and fell upon his foremost foes the quality of these three armies varied greatly napoleon's array was one of the best he ever led being composed in the main of veterans 
the prussians were all of one nation they also had fought in the war of independence and were animated by the fierce and lofty spirit which years of subjection had aroused the duke's army was composite britons hanoverians dutch belgians brunswickers nassauers in no way equal to the hardy soldiers who stormed through the pyrenees i command a very small british army with a very large british staff to which my superiors are adding every day he wrote three weeks before the campaign opened at an earlier period he begged the horse guards to refrain from forwarding more generals until they sent him troops he thought the british government were afraid to touch the question of war they had so unaccountably delayed their preparations in the end he had to do his best with an army which contained only thirty thousand british troops of all arms including the german legion which was second to none when napoleon drove out of paris on june twelfth the allied forces in belgium the only part of the great alliance ready for battle were posted at different points between audenard on the scheldt and liege on the meuse the british on the right drew their supplies from ostend and antwerp the prussians from cologne blucher had his headquarters at namur wellington at brussels and each was prepared to assist the other by marching to the right or left or concentrating on the centre should that be assailed now through that centre ran the high road to brussels cut almost at right angles at quatre bras by the transverse line of communication between nivelles and namur which secured the connection between the two armies wellington's troops except the reserve in and near the belgian capital were all to his right or west of the central highway and blucher's on the left except that seaton's corps was at charleroi and extended beyond it up the sambre toward maubeuge and therefore in front of the british troops near mons napoleon noting this distribution resolved to strike at the line of junction hoping that by long swift marches he might interpose a mass between the two defeat each in succession or drive them to unite if they could beyond brussels it was a bold project but one which imposed on his troops labours greater than they could perform and in addition allowed nothing for accident or fortune requiring for success the exact and punctual fulfilment of its exorbitant demands wellington did not divine as it is called the plan of this master in the practice of war and thought to the end of his days that napoleon might have done better and this misjudgment though it did not prevent his success is paraded as a proof of his inferiority as a general napoleon therefore started with a great advantage he was going to strike where he was least expected and by skilful management he was able to concentrate his army almost though not quite unobserved just within the french frontier opposite the supposed gap or weak place through which he intended to break his departure from paris was known at namur and brussels Zieten's troops who kept a vigilant watch saw the red flush of the french bivouac fires above the forest and the allies were alert and ready to move wellington did not issue any order or change the distribution of his divisions when he knew only that napoleon was on the frontier but he was ready to march to his left just as blucher was ready to close to his own right the difference was that wellington desired some definite indication that the emperor was not about to strike at his communications with england whereas blucher 
who had no need to fear for his line of supply, was eager at the first warning to take up a position for battle. So it fell out that on the night of the 14th, when Napoleon's orders were actually issued, Blücher directed Seaton, if attacked, to retire fighting on Fleurus, and his three other corps to concentrate behind it at Sombref. But on the 14th, no information would ever reach Brussels which went farther than the fact that Napoleon was on the frontier. The reason for the difference is that the Prussian outposts touched the French army, and therefore the intelligence from the front went swiftly to Namur and slowly to Brussels. The situation strongly illustrates the grave danger attending the operations of Allied armies acting in concert from divergent bases under independent commanders. One commander-in-chief would have known all that was to be known and have guided himself accordingly. While the Prussian corps were moving on the 15th from Liège, Namur, and Sine toward the chosen field of Ligny, not a man stirred from the British cantonments. The French at dawn sprang forward in three columns, Reilly and Derlon down the Sambre, Vandamme, Lobeau, and Napoleon direct from Beaumont upon Charlois, and Girard from Philippeville upon Châtelet. Though Tsitaine forgot to break down the bridges, still he ably handled his retreating troops, delayed the enemy, kept up a bold front, and at eventide remained in possession of Fleurus. Accidents and misunderstandings for which Napoleon did not allow actually occurred, and at night the farthest points attained by his leading troops were Fran, Wagnet, and Lamboussard. The rear extended to the right bank of the Sambre near Charleroi and to the left bank of that river opposite Châtelet. The emperor was satisfied with the day's work, and if we may judge from his language, retired to Charleroi in the confident belief that the next day his troops would be in Brussels. Not the faintest intimation that anything unusual had occurred in the valley of the Sambre reached the British headquarters until three in the afternoon. For eleven hours there had been steady marching and fighting within forty miles of Brussels and ten miles of the British outposts at Fran, yet not a whisper of conflict was heard by Wellington. The Prince of Orange rode in from Nivelle and brought to the Duke about three o'clock a report that some skirmish or hostile movement had happened at Toulon, and a very little later General Muffling received a dispatch from Namur giving the same or similar intelligence. Upon that, Wellington would not act decisively. He awaited a messenger from Mons. But he issued orders for all the divisions to concentrate at fixed points and stand prepared to march. Some time before midnight, direct information came from the outposts of Mons all there being quiet, that the French attack was directed upon Charleroi, where the infantry fire was very hot, and then he sent out orders for the troops to march by Nivelle, Braine-le-Comte, and Enghien, that is, from right to left, toward the scene of conflict. The reserve was to march from Brussels by Waterloo and Genappe. At midnight the Duke called on Meufling to tell him what he had done, so that Blücher might be informed. The numerous friends of Napoleon here will be on tiptoe, he said to the German general. The well-intentioned must be pacified. Let us therefore go to the Duchess of Richmond's ball and start for Quatre Bras at 5 a.m. The remark and the action are alike characteristic of one whose 
equanimity rarely broke down and never in moments of peril he had done all he could when his orders were issued and considering how strong the french or rather the bonapartists were in belgium he was wise when he showed his serene and cheerful countenance at a ball destined to be famous in the morning he set out for the front and near waterloo passed the reserve then halted and eating their breakfast and riding onward reached quatre bras around eleven finding that the french were only skirmishing with the outposts toward frannes he sent an order for the reserve to march from waterloo and then rode off by the namur road to the prussian position which he entered by the right rear and joined blucher at the windmill of bussy between ligny and brie there he undertook to give the prussians direct aid providing he was not attacked himself but from his own observation and the reports of sir henry harding he gravely doubted whether the prussians would be able to escape a defeat and when he got back about three o'clock to quatre bras he saw enough to convince himself that he also would have a hard task to maintain his ground at this moment when the struggle on both fronts had begun when the sound of napoleon's battle was audible plainly at quatre bras and ney's onset had become severe and continuous we may briefly sketch the general situation blucher had concentrated three corps at ligny and would have had four but for one of those accidents which are not infrequent in war the emperor in error at first respecting the strength of the prussians he called them a body of troops as soon as he was better informed brought up two corps and the guard keeping lobo in reserve on the brussels road ney had two corps but it was not until about three o'clock that the whole of one of them Reilly, was up to the front while the other derlon the victim of error and zeal wandered between the two armies all day useless to either wellington's divisions except two dutch belgian brigades present on the field were all on the march and on their arrival he depended to frustrate ney Muffling, seeing the state of affairs on the spot had taken care to let blucher know that no help could come to him from his ally on his return from bussy the english general found the prince of orange contending with a force superior in all arms yet not strong enough to seize quatre bras the duke's presence gave new life to the battle and when picton's division followed by the brunswickers and von merrill's belgian horse arrived he took the offensive pushing forward right up to the edge of the farm of gemioncourt ney reinforced by the rest of Reis corps and part of kellermann's cavalry violently retorted and in the charge which partially broke into spray before the squares wellington ran the risk of death or capture but he leaped his horse over the ninety-second highlanders lining the ditch on the namur road while his gallant pursuers cut up by the infantry fire were killed or driven off ney was further reinforced by more guns and cavalry and wellington's brigades continued to arrive in parcels the marshal was always superior in horsemen and cannon but after five o'clock his opponent had larger numbers of foot holding firmly to the crossroads and the highway to namur wellington became the stronger as the day waned and when the guards emerged from the nivelle road and the allies pressed forward ney who had no fresh troops was driven back and his antagonist remained at sundown master of the whole field of battle the position was maintained but the cost was great 
for there were no fewer than four thousand six hundred killed and wounded more than half being british soldiers the thunder of the cannon to the eastward had also died away but none knew as yet at quatre bras how blucher had fared at the hands of his redoubtable foe wellington who slept at his headquarters in genappe was on the field and scrutinizing his outposts at daybreak on the seventeenth soon after came a report confirmed a little later that the prussians had retreated on wavre their rear-guard had remained all night near the french and when they retired by tilly and gentine their foes missed all trace of them napoleon had a belief that blucher would retire upon liege which caused him at a late hour in the day to dispatch grouchy to that side and thus touch was lost while the french were cooking and napoleon was pondering definite intelligence was brought to wellington who learning for certain that blucher was at wavre promised to stand fast himself at mont saint jean and fight if blucher would support him with two corps the intrepid marshal replied that he would come with his whole army and wellington got the famous answer before night thus was made between generals who thoroughly trusted each other that combination which led to the battle of waterloo it was no chance combat but the result of a deliberate design rendered capable of execution even when blucher was wounded by his resolve to retreat upon wavre and by napoleon who acted on conjecture that the prussians would hurry toward their base at liege the morning at quatre bras was peaceful the allies cooked their food before starting forward wellington it is said lay down for a moment and snatched perhaps a little sleep there was no stir in front or on the exposed left flank and covered by a strong display of horsemen the allied divisions tramped steadily toward mont saint jean napoleon had hesitated long before he took any decision and when about midday ney's horsemen showed on the highway and napoleon's leading squadrons were approaching from ligny there was no force near quatre bras except cavalry the duke was still to the fore as the french came on the heavy and light brigades retired over the deal by fords or through the defile of genappe the french horse followed and beyond genappe essayed a charge at first with some success but soon they were overborne by the first life guards and then held aloof so the retreat continued all day a thunderstorm so often a precursor of wellington's battles deluged the fields with rain and pursuer and pursued struggling through the mire were drenched to the skin by nightfall napoleon was with the light horse in advance when they halted at la belle alliance and fired a few guns which were answered from the opposite ridge derlon lobo and the guard had come up but Ray was still at genappe and did not rejoin until the next morning End of section thirteen